Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a lengthy chapter and it's also a great chapter full of teaching that we need to be taught. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. And Paul says, Moreover, brethren, this connects us with what he had been teaching. He's as much as saying, above all the things that I have been teaching you in the last two or three chapters would be the connection. I declare unto you the gospel. Now, if you'll notice that he says, I declare unto you. The gospel is not something that is to be disputed. It's not something to be reasoned out and say, well, this could be this way or another way. It's something that is to be spoken and a declaration made because it's concerning the person of Christ and his death and burial and resurrection. And it's just simply that. Nothing more and nothing less. And he says, I declare unto, the God, unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. He says, I declare it, I preached it to you, you've received it, and you stand. You stand on the basis of your faith in that gospel. Now, if their faith was true... They had a good standing. If their faith, faith was in vain, if they just really didn't believe it in their hearts as they should have, then, of course, they were in danger. He's going to warn them of that in a moment. A person must truly and fully and completely believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, I declare unto you the gospel. You received it. You stand on the basis of that truth, of that gospel. And he's going to say what it is in a moment. <clears throat> now then... Uh, he says, by which also you're saved, if you keep in memory. Now, if you have a marginal reference, it says, hold fast. If this is what you're holding to, if you're holding fast to that gospel, you're saved by it. If this is really where you stand, if this is really what you're trusting in, if you have really received it in your heart, and he says, what I pre if you keep in memory what I have preached in you, unless you have believed in vain. And this would be those that have not really and truly from their heart believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's such a thing as the true believer. And there's such a thing as those that have believed, and we read of them in the book of Acts, two or three fellows. Remember, one fellow believed, and then almost immediately he began to do right contrary to what he professed to believe. He was found to be seeking to be a believer on the basis of what he could gain by it. And if you'll remember, he wanted to pay money to receive the Holy Spirit and, and to be able to lay his hands on others that they would receive the Holy Spirit in the days of the apostles. All of those kind of things. But the true believer. Now then, what is it? It means that if you truly believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God that came down from heaven and the gospel record of his birth, of his life, of his death on the cross, substitutionary atoning death, of his resurrection, and your faith is in him who died to save you, in him alone, that's truly believing the gospel. And the person that does that, he's saved. If he's holding fast to that, if you keep in memory, in other words, if you're holding fast to that particular gospel of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his death, burial, and resurrection, then, of course, you have not believed in vain. In verse 3, it says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also <clears throat> I also received. 
Paul says, this is what I received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now then, when Paul was saying that he died for our sins according to the Scriptures, not only do we have, since the New Testament has been made up, the New Testament Scriptures that really declare this same truth, but it was also revealed in the Old Testament. The Scriptures that Paul and Peter and John had to preach were the was the Old Testament Scriptures. And if you'll remember that Jesus, after the resurrection, the Bible says, Christ Jesus, after his resurrection, he opened to them the Scriptures. And what was it? That Christ, that it behooved Christ to suffer. In other words, it was necessary. In order to fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures, it was necessary that Christ suffer and rise again from the dead, the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So we find that that's in Luke chapter 24. Uh, the gospel is according to the scriptures. Christ's death is according to the scriptures. And verse 4, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So what is it that Paul found and Peter found and John and all the apostles and even Jesus reminded us of that the full truth of Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection was revealed to us and was preached to us from the Old Testament as well as now from the New. Now then, Paul spoke by divine inspiration, the same as all the Old Testament prophets and the same as all the word in the Old Testament. And Peter in his writings puts Paul's teachings and Paul's letters and Paul's uh, words that he spoke on the same level of divine inspiration as all the Old Testament scripture, so that you find that even though they did not have them at this time when Paul was preaching, they were being made up. In fact, the very words that he was preaching to these Corinthians and the very letters he was writing would ultimately become the New Testament of Scripture. We'll give you a reference to that effect later on because it has a place in this chapter for another purpose as well. If you look at verse 5, after Christ was risen from the dead, he was seen. It says, and that he was seen of Cephas, that Peter, then of the twelve, after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep, some had passed on, of Christian brethren, five hundred brethren at one time. Now you know if there's anything that stands to be proven by eyewitnesses, the resurrection and the appearances of Christ to Christian people, to brethren, after uh, he was crucified, buried, and and risen again. There's This is proof beyond a shadow of a doubt. Can you imagine 500 brethren being assembled here and Jesus before them and them all being mistaken concerning Jesus Christ? 500 people recognizing the person that was preaching to them, speaking to them, that was in their midst, that was talking with them, that was eating and uh, drinking with them after he rose from the dead. And we know on, it, on some occasions he did exactly that. We don't know what all happened when the 500 brethren witnessed his appearance, but it does say that he appeared, was seen of above 500 brethren at once. Now then, if you look at verse um, 7, after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. And if you'll remember when Paul, then Saul of Tarsus, when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus as he was going about persecuting Christians, he saw him as one born out of due time. What does he mean by that? 
Paul was one that could only be a, an apostle by the exception of the rule because all the others were required to have seen Jesus after his resurrection. If you'll remember in the first chapter of the book of Acts when Peter just is choosing out a man would fill the place of Judas that there had to be one that had gone with them beginning from the baptism of John until the day in which Jesus was received up into heaven. And they had to witness all of these things. So they would have to be witnesses of his life, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection, of his ascension into glory in order to be qualified. For Paul saw him especially as one born out of due time. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. Now, if you want to get the exact requirements for that apostleship in Acts chapter 1, that one that was to be chosen, says in verse 21, Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until that same day that he was taken up from us. Till that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So you see, these men that were chosen then to fill the place had to fill those requirements. But Paul uh, saw the Lord as one born out of due time. In other words, he was the exception to the rule that was then laid down. Now then, if you look again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles. I'm not as, I'm not as meet as they are. I'm not meet to be called an apostle. And for this reason, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, in his ignorance and in his blindness and in his unbelief, was the persecutor. In Acts chapter 9, that's what he was doing when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. But if you look at verse 10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. Paul said, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, not meet to be called an apostle. But he said, whatever I am, it's by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, I like that statement. I think it not only fits the Apostle Paul, but it's, a, it's something that should fit each and every one of us. You see, Paul didn't try to place himself even on the level of the other apostles, though I'm sure he, if you look at the ministry of Paul, God would place him on the highest level. Yet he was the kind of man that felt himself to be only what he was by the grace of God. And he wasn't a braggart. He wasn't trying to put himself above anyone else. In fact, he considered himself beneath them. And yet he would do what he did because of what the Lord had done for him. And as I say, this ought to fit every soul among us. We ought to do uh, what the Lord leads us to do and be what we are by the grace of God. Regardless of what the other fellow is. You don't have to live up to the other fellow's expectations or the other fellow's requirements or the other fellow's pressures against you or whatever he may suggest that you're a failure in. You don't have to do that. You do what God's Word teaches you and you be what you are by the grace of God and it'll be blessed and it'll be what you ought to be. I used to have folks that uh, I've been put down. You've been put down too, I'm sure, in life. But I'd have people say, well, why aren't you like preacher so-and-so. Well, because I'm not preacher so-and-so. That, that's not me. That's him. Or why don't you say things like certain preachers? Because that's their business, not mine. What I say is what the Lord lays on my heart and what he teaches me from his word. Some will even say, well, why don't you agree with brothers so-and-so on this particular scripture or this uh, uh, interpretation? 
Why I don't agree is because I believe that I teach it as the Lord shows it to me. And I don't mean by that that he has gives me a special revelation because he tells us to study. He says, study and show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And from all the sources that I can gather and from all the scholarship that I may digest or bring into my thinking, I finally come to some conclusions that I stand maybe a little different than some other fellow stands on particular uh, verses of Scripture, but at least I feel like that that's the convincing arguments of all the ones that I've studied and the ones that I have confidence in that teach me as I try to teach others the same thing. That's what Paul told Timothy. You know, Paul said to Timothy, he said, the words that you have received of me among many witnesses, the same you teach to others also. You commit to faithful men who may be able to teach others also. So that word was committed to other men. I'm sure Timothy didn't depart from the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Paul didn't depart from what he had received of the Lord. And in harmony with the other apostles. If you'll remember that church council that we spoke of, at Jerusalem, the 15th chapter of the book of Acts that we've just taught in the last two or three weeks. They all agreed finally and come and came to a conclusion concerning the, the Gentiles and whether or not they were to be kept under the law. Well, they didn't, after that decision was made, it was final. No one ever tried to, to uh, come back and put the Gentiles under the law and have them circumcised like like the rest of the Jews. So we find that that's the case in the Scripture, that there's conclusions, and we need to study and understand the Word, and uh, be what we are by the grace of God. Do what we ought to do. I've heard people say, well, you differ in that Scripture from someone, some preacher they heard preach. Well, that's his opinion. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, aren't they? If he believes it that way, let him preach it that way. But if I believe it like I preach it, well... uh that's the way I'm going to preach it. And I try to base my convictions on what I study from the Word of God and the overall conclusive conclusiveness of the whole subject concerning that particular subject and make my decisions there. But by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. You know, some people that have received the grace of God in vain, that's spoken of, receiving the grace of God in vain, are those that the grace does not do anything in their lives. It does not change anything in their lives. It does not cause them to want to work. It does not cause them to want to serve. That would certainly be in vain, wouldn't it? Because Paul goes on to say, But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. You see that? If God's grace that's bestowed upon us doesn't cause us to want to do what he will lead us to do and lay upon our heart to do, then, then certainly it would not be effective in our lives. And verse 11 says, Therefore, whether it were I or they, Paul says, whether it was I or they others, so we preach and so you believe. Paul says, as far as the credit's concerned, that's just a, a minor thing. We don't care about that. Paul says we both preached and you believed. And that's the, that's the important thing, that, that there's some that believed it. Now then, but he gets into a controversial matter beginning in verse 12 because some among them were not preaching or believing in the resurrection of Christ. And he says, now 
If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, they had those that were not preaching the truth in those days, that were not believing the truth, that were not practicing the truth. And Paul says, how say some among you that there is no resurrection from the dead? And he goes to show that everything in our Christian faith either stands or falls by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven's glory in a miraculous way, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life upon this earth, was crucified between two thieves on Calvary's cross to make an atonement for our sins and was buried in Joseph's new tomb. But if he did not rise from the dead, then we have no safety. You say, well, he's crucified for our sins. But the resurrection from the dead was the proof that he was the one that he claimed to be and the guarantee that everything that he had done was acceptable in the sight of God. The Bible says he was delivered for our offenses, but he was raised again for our justification to justify us in the sight of God. You read Romans chapter 4, the last verse, the fourth chapter. And then Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that you can have peace with God? Because you believe that Jesus was delivered to the cross for your sins and that, that he proved it and he guaranteed that it was acceptable by rising from the dead and therefore you're justified by faith in the sight of God. God has accepted Christ's death and resurrection on your behalf and on mine and therefore you can rest assured that if your faith is in him that he has made peace with God and because you have believed that you have peace with God. And it's not only that you possess it inwardly, it's that Christ has wrought it for you. You read Colossians 1 verse 20 and the Bible says concerning Jesus, and having made peace by the blood of his cross. He made that peace. Man was at enmity with God, but he made the peace with God for us on the basis of his death, the blood of his cross. And he guaranteed it by his resurrection. Now then, Paul is going to show in these next few verses how that everything in our Christian faith either stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It says this in verse 13, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Christ didn't rise if there be no resurrection. And if Christ be not risen, if that were the case, then our preaching is our preaching vain. And he says, And your faith is also vain. Why would their faith be vain? Because they would be believing something that was not true. You know, as far as many things that are preached and have been preached through the years, a person's faith in something that is not true is, is really vain, isn't it? Some people believe a false doctrine. Their faith in that doctrine, even though it's, it's faith, it's faith, it's believing in something that's not true. Their faith is vain, isn't it? I believe the faith of a Buddhist, a Mohammedan, a Muslim. I believe the faith of those people uh, is vain. In other words, it's void. It's no good. They have faith in someone that cannot save them. They have faith in a man. They have faith in one that they call a prophet, one that they set up as a god. It, and the same thing is true whether it's concerning the individual god that is set up or an individual, I might say, a separate doctrine. Even in Christianity, if a man's faith is in his own ability to save himself in the realm of Christianity, his faith is vain. Did you see that? Because he's believing in something that can never be. If a man believes that he can lift himself by, up by his own bootstraps, 
to the portals of glory, his faith is vain. If a man believes that his works are going to make him acceptable in the sight of God, the Bible says that salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. His faith is vain. If a man believes that because he comes to church or because he's he has a good outward testimony, because he's faithful in uh, trying to serve God, that that's going to take him to heaven, his faith is vain. If a man believes because he was baptized in the water, that that's going to make assurance and be and assure him of heaven, that that's going to take him to heaven, then his faith in that is vain. The Bible teaches baptism. The Bible teaches good works. The Bible teaches we ought to be these things, but it's the result of Jesus Christ in our lives and not the, the merit of our uh, home in heaven. You see, that doesn't add anything to it. Jesus saved you by his grace. He saved you because he loved you, and he saved you because he died and paid the full price for your salvation. If you believe on him, you're saved. Whether you've been in church, out of church, whether you have many good works or a few good works, whether you've been baptized or not been baptized, whether you never have joined a church in your life, if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, that's salvation. But then these other things are proper and right in their right order. And we ought to have some of them. But our, uh, the vain, we must believe in Christ. If Christ be not risen, then as our preaching vain, your faith is also vain. We must even not only believe in the person of Christ, but we must believe that he is the one that rose from the dead for our justification. Now then, as far as understanding all of this when a person is saved, that's not necessarily true. But they do believe it. You take a child when they're a boy or girl, and, and some adults, when they're, when they're uh, saved, when they first believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't understand all this. This is scriptural truth that later on when they're taught it, they're willing to accept it. But the Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. When the gospel call goes out and a, a boy or girl or man or woman is willing to believe on Christ and trust him with their soul, believe he died for their sins, that they're a sinner, they receive him, they're saved. And then later on you're taught all of the details and the meaning of salvation and you're taught what it means concerning the resurrection of Christ. That if your faith was in a person that had not risen from the dead, and in the person of Christ, and he had not risen from the dead, then your faith would be in vain. And look at verse 15. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. We that have preached it, we that have taught it, because we have testified, look, of God, that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. In other words, if the apostles had testified of the resurrection of Christ, and he didn't rise again from the dead, then they were false witnesses of God. Now, there are many false witnesses that testify of things that are not true. There are many false witnesses that testify of things that are not true in the Christian realm. Those that testify contrary to the word of God. Those that even attempt to preach a gospel that perverts the gospel. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says that if I or an angel from heaven come to you with any other gospel and preach another gospel which I have not preached unto you, he says, let him be a curse. And he says, there, there are some that preach another gospel, which is not another, but they attempt to pervert. They try to twist the gospel of Christ. They try to change it. Now then, Paul declared it here. And if anyone you hear preaching the gospel from a pulpit on the street corner or in a, in a church or in a synagogue or on the radio or on the television doesn't admit that the plain 
fundamentals of the gospel and the points of the gospel is the person of Christ, his death and his resurrection, then they're not preaching the gospel. And Paul says, if any man preaches it otherwise and claims, claims that to be the gospel, he says, let him be a church. That's what God's word says. Now, you have some today that claim to be preaching the gospel on radio and on television and here and there across the land and around the world that preach a gospel of works. Well, that's a so-called gospel. They preach a gospel of law. They preach a gospel of Sabbath keeping. That's their gospel. The good news is if you keep the Sabbath. The good news is if you if you keep the Ten Commandments. The good news is that uh, you've got to do certain works in order to be saved. Well, that's perverting the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel. And I believe that every young Christian, uh, all, all of the, all Christians that have grown to any extent in the faith and in grace need to understand thoroughly, but even young Christians ought to be taught immediately and convincingly and conclusively the fundamentals of the very gospel of the grace of God, and that is that they ought to know that if anyone departs from these things that Paul is preaching, when he says, I declare unto you the gospel that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and if any preacher departs from that as the gospel of Christ, you ought to be able to immediately detect it as to whether that man's preaching the gospel or not. You ought to be able to find it out, because if he doesn't preach that, in the course of his messages and his sermons from time to time, and in the course of all that that he does preach and teach, then you'll know that he's not fully preaching that gospel. So this is something that you've got to keep in mind, keep in view. And this is something that you can test it by as you go along. So let's look at the next verse now. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's some Bibles on the back pews. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 15. And Paul says, we're false witnesses of God if Christ be not risen, because we testify that he is risen. Now verse 16, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. Look, if Christ be not raised, then you're still in your sins. You say, well, he died for our sins. Yes, but the guarantee of the effectiveness and of the value of his death was based on his claim of the resurrection. You see that? In other words, if Christ uh, was not raised again, he made a claim that he would uh, that he would uh, suffer for man's sins. He says, this is my blood of the New Testament. This is represents my blood, which is shed for many. Now listen, for the remission of sins. But he also predicted that he would rise again the third day. Now, if Christ be not risen, you say, well, the question of my sins was settled by his death. No, it wasn't because he would not be the true Christ that predicted of his resurrection. There would be no guarantee that any claim that he made was true if Christ be not risen. There would be no guarantee that anything about his person was true if Christ be not risen. So you see that everything that he claimed to be and to do and all the values of his life depended upon that prediction that he would rise again the third day. And that's exactly what he said he would do. That's why it's all in vain unless Christ be risen from the dead. Where is Jesus now? He's not only risen from the dead. He came out of that grave victorious over death, hell, and the grave. He came out a living new body. With the same, what I mean by that is, a glorified body, a glorious body, a resurrected body, and the same nail prints in his hands, 
He was literally bodily resurrected, and he ascended up into glory in that same body, in that body that by which he was resurrected, and the form that he assumed or became in that resurrection, he could walk through walls, close doors, and appear in the midst of the disciples. And it was not beyond the humanity of the, uh, in the sense that he could take into his body those very same things, the food elements that he took in before his death. The Bible says that he did eat and drink with them after his resurrection. So we know it was a literal resurrection. It was a resurrection from the grave. It was a resurrection from the dead. And in this same body, he ascended up in the clouds of heaven. And now, where is he? He's seated on the right hand of the power of the throne of God. And there he will wait until the time will come that he will come in power and great glory. First, he will call the dead saints to life and the living believers will be changed and they'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Then he's coming back to the earth in power and great glory. Okay? It says here in verse 17 that you're yet in your sins. And not only that, look at verse 18. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. What does it mean? If Christ be not raised, all of those that have died, all of your loved ones that have gone on before you, that have professed faith in Christ, and the Bible speaks of them, and only Christians, as falling asleep, those that are falling asleep in Christ, they're already perished. There's not any hope that you will ever see them again if Christ be not risen. You see, all of your future hope of ever seeing a loved one, of ever seeing a friend, of life beyond the grave, of any future whatsoever beyond the doors of death is based upon one thing. And what is that one thing? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave. If Christ be not risen, Paul says, this is not true. That everything falls. And he says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. Can you imagine a person going through this life not believing in a living Christ? Can you imagine a person going through this life not believing in anything after death or any eternity? Or going through this life having faith in Christ as a person and classifying him like a prophet or like a, a Buddha or Muhammad or some other of those that never rose from the dead and in which there was never a claim of their resurrection, I'd shuck it all, wouldn't you? I'd close the book, close the doors, and go home. Forget the whole thing. There would be nothing to it. If we, in this life only we have a hope in Christ, he would say, we're all men most miserable. If there's nothing that's for you and I after we fall asleep in Christ, if all those that are falling asleep in Christ are perished, there's nothing in view for you and I if we're living and uh, until the time that destruction comes to this world, and there's no hope in Christ coming again for us, there's no hope in the resurrection from the dead for all from for all of our loved ones or for ourselves either. If we fall asleep, then what would be the use? Paul says everything stands or falls with the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 20. States all the negative down to verse 19. If Christ be not, if Christ be not, and all through. You're yet in your sins are preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. Those that are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Everything falls if Christ be not risen. But look, verse 20 is the turning point. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruit of them that slept. What's he saying? Christ indeed is risen from the dead. And in his resurrection, 
He became the first fruits of them that slept. And what was the first fruits in the Old Testament? That was the offering of the sheaf of the first fruit. Israelite went out and he gathered a little place where there's a little ripe grain in the field. The rest of it was ripening, and it would be ready at harvest time, but here's some that was already ripe, just ready to go. And they'd gather a little of it, and they'd come in and wave it before he come in and, and give it to the priest. And this was a wave offering. It was to be waved as a wave offering. And this was a promise that there was a harvest out in that field. Christ was the first fruit, and afterward they that are Christ it is coming. And Christ coming forth from the grave is God's guarantee and pledge that there's a whole harvest of souls that's to be resurrected. That every believer will be resurrected from the dead. In their own time and in their own order. Now there is a time for all of this to happen. But Christ is the first fruit of them that's left. We'll see a little more about it as we progress. Let me give you down to about verse 24 at least. Verse 21 says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now then, in Adam all die. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though over those that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Read that in Romans chapter 5. But it says, Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now then, the all here is concerning all who are believers. They shall be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. We might say, in a sense, all will be made alive. If you want to hold it right down to the point, even the, the wicked dead shall be made alive only to be cast out again. But we know only uh, those that are believers will be made alive so as to live eternally with Christ, but there is a life beyond the grave even for the wicked dead. But their life is, is death. It's not really life, is it? Their existence is death, we might say. They're not destroyed. They are not uh, annihilated at Christ's coming. But it says in verse 23, and this is the important thing, we're really dealing with the thought of Christians being raised and the fact that they are alive in Jesus Christ and Christ's resurrection is a promise and guarantee of their resurrection and of his coming. In verse 23, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So you have those that are the firstfruits of the resurrection. Christ is the firstfruits, and afterward they that are Christ at his coming. This is when the harvest is going to take place. Now then, when Christ comes, he's going to come, all right, first of all, He's going to come for his own. And the Bible speaks of the fact that he will come with his own. But when he comes for his own, he's not going to come at that particular time back to this earth. He's going to come in the heaven. And the Bible says that the uh, shout will be made, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You find that First Thessalonians chapter 4. We will not go before, if we're living at the time that Jesus comes, we will not go before those that are dead or fallen asleep, but they that are asleep in Jesus will be raised, and we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? Not on the earth, but in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then according to God's plan, after seven years of great tribulation upon this earth, the Lord will come with his saints. They will come back to this earth with him from glory 
And in judgment, and you read in the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, and it tells you that, that he will come and with him the armies of heaven that will follow him upon white horses, and they will come, and he will come back to this earth to judge and to make war and to bring judgment upon an ungodly world. And he's coming with the armies of heaven, and those armies of heaven will be those that make up the ones that he raises when he comes for them in the air. And he will come again in power and great glory to set up his kingdom upon this earth. A millennial kingdom that you find in the same, in the next chapter, in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. We won't have time to go any further. We'll pick this up, the Lord willing, in the next verse, which will be verse 24. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 for our next lesson. Thank you for your kind attention.